So when I went to visit, uh, she they call him Mr. Handsome. So they, every time Ed walked in, just Mr. Handsome, Mr. Handsome. But I, <laughs> I didn't hear clearly. So I thought they just kept saying, put some pants on, put some pants on. And I was like, it's kind of weird to tell your cat that, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so now every time I see their cat, I just put some pants on. Oh, the cat's yeah. name, Mr. Handsome. Oh, I mean, that would be awesome if Broke walked around I, telling I Brian, the, Mr. Handsome. <laughs> oh, okay, that was the guy. That was the guy in the, in the video. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Unfiltered podcast. The gang is here. How is everyone doing? Hello. We're good. Hello. Good, I think. Doing good. And we're, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Doctor, should I say, yeah, Mr. Dr. Hunter Waldman is back. Uh, we had so much fun on episode 14. We decided, what the heck, let's just keep keep talking about all this good stuff. Uh Hunter is an assistant professor at the University of North Alabama. He's a former collegiate football player and sweat consultant with Gatorade Sports Science Institute. He received his bachelor and master's at UNA in exercise science and his PhD in exercise science at Mississippi State University. So that's where I guess the connection is with Roe. How are you doing, Hunter? Doing good. Glad to be back on here. and appreciate you guys having me back. Ready to get going. Of course, of course. I'm so excited. We're going to keep talking about a lot of your other interesting research. You have done a crazy amount of research, <laughs> especially for being so young. <laughs> yeah, lucky that my mentor, Ro knows uh, Dr. McAllister, just Matt, mm-hmm. but Ro knows Matt very well. And he is, uh, he's like, he goes way hard and He's to so have funny. that as your major prof, it's like you, you have to meet his intensity level. And so, so much of that research you'll see he's a part of. And that was just simply because if, if I didn't give anything but a hundred percent, I would not have been his doc student. I mean, you, you just have to, I guess, have to know him to know yeah. like, you have to go hard <laughs> all the time. Am I lying row? No, no, we'll have him on here at some point too, and he'll be like, "Yeah, I mean, if you're not doing it, just get the fuck out." Like, yep. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. He's awesome. Yeah, very cool. That's very great. Cool what are y'all drinking tonight? Uh, I have a, a Paloma, uh, an actual one. <laughs> so I am home. So I am raiding my parents' liquor cabinet. So. They have uh, Himalod, which is a pretty good tequila and squirt, and it's nice and easy. Four ice cubes, some salt, some lime. I'll be I'll be nice and toasty for the next for the next hour, hour and a half. So nice. Nicole needs to say Paloma just to make me happy. How do you say Nicole? <laughs> Paloma. Paloma. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Paloma. You know. It's just we're too country. We're too country to to say um drinks that aren't uh I don't know, like beer and <laughs> wine. 
<laughs> if you can say like Sauvignon Blanc or whatever, then you can say Paloma. Oh like, yeah, I do have a funny story <laughs> because um, I'm actually drinking a Cabernet Franc. And I was looking up how to pronounce it because it's French, and I feel like French is one of the harder languages to master. And I was going to get on here and probably be like, I'm drinking some Cabernet Franc. <laughs> but, um, Good old Frank. Yes, it's a Cabernet Franc, um, but in French, the C would be silent because most of the last letters of in French are silent, so like Cabernet has a T on the end, but we don't say the T, so it would be Cabernet Franc. Um, but Ooh. yeah, that's my little story about what I'm drinking <laughs> and the bottle. Of course, like I'm always attracted to whatever's on the bottle, and it's called Lazy Bones, and it's like this girl just like sprawled out on her bed, butt naked, and I'm like, this seems appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for those of you that can't see the video, uh, she sprawled out butt naked on her bed as she's doing this podcast, so that, that's why it's appropriate. Oh my gosh, paint me like one of your French girls. Oh my god, Hunter's like, this has been really cool, we'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah he's like, um, I'm getting off. I just have to tell my students, I'm just going to skip ahead. Well, that's I also awesome. noticed that at the beginning of all the episodes, you know, Roe is our our producer and it's always me saying something really stupid so i guess you know it's always at my expense <laughs> it's funny i give the people what they want and they say more cocoa so right it is. <laughs> all right you brooke what are you drinking um brian found this wine randomly probably at a gas station when he came back from his road trip but it's um <laughs> Dreaming Tree. It's Dave Matthews Winery. Have you guys ever heard of it? I didn't even know he had a winery. Yeah. I mean, I love Dave Matthews. I don't know if that makes me like the whitest white girl ever, but (laughs) I'm a huge fan. (laughs) (laughs) So it's pretty good. It's like a red wine blend. I'm a fan. Always a fan. Nice. Dave Matthews music is classic like for me classic nighttime like on a country road driving <laughs> it's like the perfect music to listen to i you know what i i remember walking into your office as you were like typing away and you listen to a lot of reggae reggae don't you oh yeah oh yeah, yeah which is like so not what i expected of you it's um of all the music when i was about 12 i discovered reggae and even though I grew up in the South, I country, I, I appreciate it. I just don't listen to it um, nearly as much as reggae. I discovered it when I was 12, and I was just like, man, what is this I'm listening to? And um, just jobbed with it. And, yeah, well, it was, it was interesting because I got to high school, and people would hear me listening to it, and everybody just immediately associated me as being a, a pretty much a pothead because I did listen to <laughs> So much reggae, I'm like, no, I just love this type of music. So, yeah, I still job out to it all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you fact, doing I, today? I oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I'm, I'm no, within the next couple of years, I'm getting a Bob Marley tattoo. I just got to figure out where I'm putting Ooh. it. And it can't be one of those. You've probably seen those tattoos where it's like you get what you pay for and it's like a $10 tattoo of a lion and it's just a horrible and then it goes all the way up to like a thousand dollars it's pretty legit so yeah. i gotta make sure i don't get like a little smiley face with dreads coming off like i need a legit 
I need a legit tattoo. Like so a music note or two, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, now yeah, we exactly. have to look up Bob Marley tattoos gone wrong. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, there, sure. Yeah, there's plenty of them. But, I know uh, Brian's going to do one soon. He's got a Bob Marley portrait coming up. That's what he does. His, his will look like the smiley face with the dreads. So. No. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no. No, Brian Perillo Art on uh, Instagram. He's uh, super talented. Uh, that's hilarious. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> Tattoo I just I'm sipping on day. a kombucha, same thing as nice. last time. <laughs> wow, it's like what yeah. you drink all the time, right? Like it's for yeah, it's I, good for you. Well, that and when I worked with Gatorade, there was a guy who was at Colorado, one of the sweat scientists I worked with, and his area of study was the gut microbiome, which is the new hot topic, and everybody thinks they've got it figured out and. In all honesty, we really don't know anything about it just yet, but I do remember him when I talked to him. I'm like, hey, this is your research area. I don't know anything about it. Um, What would you say, like, what's the big takeaway from all your research? And he said, if you want to maintain a healthy gut microbiome, something fermented every day. And so I either try and get a yogurt in or a kombucha or sauerkraut, something like that. But uh, that always just kind of stuck out to me. Easy tidbits like that, you know, you can hang on to. You don't have to know the science behind. It's just easy to implement. Isn't that wine? Wine's fermented, right? Technically. I mean, isn't beer too? Yeah. yeah, that's that's why that's why we do what we do, guys. We just want everyone to have a healthy gut microbiome. Yeah. No leaky gut if you smash a whole six pack on the daily. So no that's how it works. Before we got on the podcast, Brian was like, tell Ro I figured out the secret to gaining muscle. And I'm like, okay. He's like, (laughs) you have to drink bourbon every night. And I'm like, I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's not what your trainer Ro told you, but we'll settle this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird because we've been training for, I think, like uh, five, six months. Um, that's normally what I tell people once they've hit the one year mark where I'm like, all right, here's the secret. Now you have to have bourbon and then the gain just, yeah, they exponentially rise. So <laughs> he just got there quicker than, than I expected him to. So I don't think we need to train each other <laughs> to train him anymore. He's got it. <laughs> that's the secret sauce. Yes, exactly. Oh man. Awesome. Well, you guys ready to jump, jump back into it? Let's do it. I'm Let's excited jump. to pick Hunter's brain. Hunter's brain again. So last time we definitely picked your brain about all the different things with carb restriction and kind of learning about your experience in carb restriction research and kind of your personal experience too and beliefs and how they changed. And that was super interesting. I can't talk. Interesting. But now I really want to touch on Um, We'll pick back up, I guess, with the questions. And the first one is, why should we care about decreasing things like inflammatory processes? So it, it really, and we kind of hit on this last time, it kind of, it really depends on in, in context. So we'll look at the two different sides, assuming we're talking about an athlete, assuming we're talking about a healthy individual that works out, the inflammatory process, which is one of the most complex things I've ever tried to understand. And I don't think I understand it enough that I could explain it in a, um, 
in an appropriate manner. I still have a lot, and I've been studying it for years, reading up on it. It is just such a complex cascade of events. With that said, I do understand that if you're talking in the context of someone's healthy and active, it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, in fact, especially if the inflammatory process is coming from exercise, um, we know there's a, something else, the hormetic theory, uh, also known as just hormesis, and this essentially states that little stressors over time, acute stressors are actually fairly beneficial for the body because those acute stressors cause the body to adapt. In fact, when you look at exercise in itself, exercise is a stressor, uh, but it's an acute, you know, for most people, maybe 30 to 60 minutes and causes that adaptation process. And so the body sees that stressor, sees that inflammatory process and says, hey, I don't want to experience this again. The best thing for me to do is to get stronger, fitter, healthier. And so you actually elevate that threshold of whatever your baseline is. Uh, but in the context of someone who's overweight, obese, uh, some of the high stress occupation individuals I've worked with, inflammation, it probably this is I, I heard this when I was first starting off in my doctorate and it was an easy thing to say, and so I stuck with it, but now having read as much as I have with inflammation, it it's, seems to me to be pretty true that all chronic diseases first start off as low-grade chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at inflammation, not acute inflammation, chronic inflammation, so your body responds to the stress state. of you know, Stress is one of those kind of areas I've spent a lot of time studying. I like to research But when we look at stress and the stress response, you've got physiological stress, you've got psychological stress, regardless of where the stressor comes from, uh, your body responds in the same manner. So the sympathetic system takes over, you release epinephrine, norepinephrine or adrenaline, your body, your heart rate picks up, your ventilation picks up. But if you're just sitting there and you're psychologically stressed out, then that's an issue. Because now we're entering into a chronic state of stress. And what we start to see is we start to see inflammation taking place. And not just for a small period of time, but chronically. And then what we start to see is depending on where that inflammation originates or even where it ends up, uh, because inflammation, depending on the inflammatory markers we're talking about, they can circulate. But now you're getting into atherosclerosis, which now we've got hypertension. Uh, you can have beta cell dysfunction, and now we're getting into insulin resistance, possibly in obesity and type 2 diabetes. You can start getting into dementia. There's a, quite a bit of research looking at amyloid plaques and dementia, um, which that can lead into Alzheimer's, that can lead into Parkinson's. Um, and, and so there's all these different diseases that can start coming out of this low-grade chronic inflammation. So again, context is key. It depends on who, who's the individual we're talking about uh, in that sense. Yeah, so uh, it's a really good point. Um, you know, I know that I'm very familiar with, um, or I guess pretty familiar with anti-inflammatory and inflammatory markers. But could you could you talk about some things that we look at? Um, you know, things like namely like IL six and TNF one alpha, and and why those things are important and and what they what they do. Sure. So interleukin six, uh, TNF alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha. These are cytokines that get released in response to acute, uh, an acute stressor, I guess you could say. 
<clears throat> IL-6 is often demonized as being an, a pro-inflammatory cytokine, but it actually plays both sides. It's actually, it can be anti-inflammatory because it's released in response to, and it once released TNF-alpha responds to the secretion of IL-6. So in that sense, it's pro-inflammatory as tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha, uh, it got its name when being studied in uh, individuals that had tumors. One of the things they noticed was a rise in this cytokine, and hence it got its name TNF-alpha. So we know that TNF-alpha is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. However, IL-6 um, IL also is known to inhibit the pro-inflammatory cascade. And so the main inflammatory marker that I usually have people look at is C-reactive protein or CRP. C-reactive protein is the, when you look at the American Heart Association, CRP is the uh, strongest independent marker of systemic inflammation. And so there, again, we could talk about L6, we could talk about TNF-alpha, but CRP is really what should be the marker everyone gets looked at. Uh, I think you want to try and keep it under, uh, I can't remember the exact units that it's measured in. might be nanograms uh, per deciliter, uh, but that aside, I think you want to, usually you want to keep it under about three, uh, but it is an excellent indicator of your risk for developing cardiovascular disease and potentially some other uh, metabolic disorders. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, also something important is you, you did mention that, uh, IL-6 plays a dual role, right? Um, but I think also in when I first learned about myokines, uh, my mind was blown, right? And IL-6 plays more of an anti-inflammatory when released as a myokine. And so the actual act of just contracting muscle releases IL-6 into the bloodstream and then it helps with further processes. So like, you know, we talk about why exercise is good for you and yeah, like heart health and all that stuff, but it really comes down to being able to help manage those inflammatory states. So when you release those myokines, then yeah, you have pro-inflammation because you have created inflammation throughout your system for that uh, time being. But at the end of it, right, then what you're doing is decreasing systematic inflammation. Um, but great explanation. I thought that that was easy to digest because I remember first learning and I was like, what? <laughs> well, I would add to that too. Uh, just for anyone who's listening, you hear the term cytokine, myokine, there's even adipokines. Yeah. These are just, the best way to, to um, explain it is wherever it's coming from. So a myokine is coming from, it's like a signal coming from the muscle and adipokine is a signal coming from adipose tissue or body fat. Uh, the way I usually explain it to people for the first time is it's like your body, your body has a way of communicating throughout the entire body. And the way it communicates in this instance, it's like with little text messages almost. These are like little signals being sent from one spot to the another, maybe the liver to the brain, uh, or maybe from the muscles to the pancreas or the kidneys or, or another organ or the heart, uh, even the brain again. So... It's pretty unique and pretty interesting to see how the body can communicate. And when we talk about um, here later on, maybe this, you know, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding around these high-stress occupations, 
uh, we, we'll probably get into this again, talking about how the body communicates through through these different cellular signals. But um, yeah, I, I was going to add the whole reason I was trying to remember why I was bringing that up is IL six just to hit off on it. On one other thing that's really interesting is when it's secreted as a myokine, it's often secreted as uh, to in, increase lipolysis, the breakdown of fat, glycolysis, improve or increase the speed of glycolysis and glycogenolysis. So the breakdown of glucose and glycogen. It's interesting that in a uh, glycogen depleted state, we often see uh, an increase in the secretion of IL-6. So I've never seen this research, but I can only imagine uh, having read, understanding IL-6 and having read the carbohydrate restricted literature that if someone was to follow a carbohydrate restricted diet or a ketogenic diet, that they should theoretically have higher IL-6 levels. Now, if you looked at that, not knowing the background, you would think IL-6, you would think that uh, this individual is in a pro-inflammatory state. Right. More than likely what's happening is IL-6 is acting as um, in the myokine manner and causing and trying to increase, because you're in a glycogen depleted state, trying to increase the process of glycolysis, glycogenolysis, and lipolysis as well. So again, this is where context comes in because yeah, it's a pro-inflammatory cytokine, but you know, there, there's different states that can affect that. Has anyone done research to look at the differences that you know of or not yet? Uh, the differences in what? When you have, um, elevated IL-6 due to reduction in glycogen or being on a ketogenic diet? Yeah, so to my knowledge, that has not been done yet. Uh, it's actually one that I keep thinking of to test where I'm at right now. I have no access to the ability to look at blood markers uh, but in all the ketogenic diet research I've read, carbohydrate, I've, I've not seen any of that. Uh, but I'm fascinated by the answer to that research question because, again, I can only imagine that it would be elevated. But it's elevated probably not due to a pro-inflammatory state. It's probably elevated to increasing those pathways that we just talked about. Because in my dissertation, which was um, we looked at 30 plus inflammatory markers with firefighters, we saw drastic reductions in several infl inflammatory markers, uh, but IL-6 was just not one of them. Hmm. That's interesting. So for anyone at UNA uh, listening, please push more funds <laughs> towards Dr. Walton. <laughs> That's the plug right there. He's earned it. Yeah, I want to, now I, I want to know. I know, right? <laughs> I have a practical application question for the for really both of you gentlemen here. What is your recommendation when someone is under an extreme amount of stress and they might have some low-grade chronic inflammation, what would be your recommendation when it comes to putting someone in kind of an acute inflammatory state with exercise? Like, is there a certain way to go about things? or different recommendations for someone like that? Bro, do you want to answer that first or you want me to? Yeah. Um, so I, I think what I'll do is I'll hit on like the more of like what I think I would do as like a coach and then 
you can be the smart one and say, now here's why <laughs> from the cellular level, why it's different or the same. That's a really good question. Um, I think it comes down to what we've talked about before as far as it being priority and prioritizing what's important, right? So I have a, uh, I had a couple of firefighters, but um, the main one now is Dave. Shout out to Dave Steves. Um, and, you know, when, when we talk about what he's going to do as far as his training program goes, um, yeah, he is under a lot of stress. They don't sleep well. Uh, he doesn't eat well sometimes, you know, and then he has to sometimes go home and deal with life at home, right? And so, you know, he has definitely different stressors than what the normal person might have because, you know, no one's calling you at 1 a.m. saying like, hey, this building's on fire, you have to go or whatever, or save this cat from a tree, right? Do firefighters still do that? Um, but, uh, you know, so so the main thing is that, what we're trying to do is make sure that he is able to train to a point where it's not affecting his work, right? So it doesn't make sense for us to crush him in the gym and then 30 minutes later he gets a call saying, hey, you have to move all these logs and, you know, these big piles of debris. And he's like, I can't. Like, uh, my my hands hurt or my body shot, right? So the main thing is training him just enough so that he's able to perform and still get whatever benefits. Um, what what I do differently with someone like him is that, you know, someone's like, I'm trying to just get bigger, right? I don't care about cardio. I don't care about strength. Then, you know, we, we tried to sneak a little bit in there. But for the most part, it's like, hey, we're just going to pile on volume. And if you keep uh, healing right, if you keep recovering right, it's going to be fine. But with him, it's like we have to hit every aspect uh, of his metabolic system, so he has days where he's doing um, really high-intensity stuff for a short burst. He has days where he sits for an hour um, right underneath his heart rate threshold and just pushes. Right? And then other days he lifts. So when you think about what we're trying to do from a practical application, we're trying to make sure that he is able to go for long periods of time as well as being able to create short bursts of power and energy when he needs to. Now, when you take a deeper look it's so that we you know we understand that cardio does help his heart right it creates a bigger base so that he can create you know more power i hate cardio but i know that if you have a bigger base then you can recover a lot faster and so what we can do then is we can decrease his resting heart rate right and so now he's not hyped up all the time his body needs to do less work just to keep him alive um and, and then when we are pushing him, right, we're like, hey, this week or this day, you really just got to crush it. But, you know, it's it's all about the heart rate being as as high as possible, pretty much, and then going back down. Um, so what we're also doing there is, is helping to get him ready by increasing the stimulus. So if I'm like, bam, here you go, you got to survive this. The next time he's in a real life situation where he's like, oh, my heart rate's pumping, my adrenaline's pumping. I don't know what's going to happen here. At least the body has had enough stress on it from a workout standpoint that it can better adapt to whatever's happening in that moment. Because if he just sits down all the time, except for when he's at work, then you don't get that those like little limits raising it. It's kind of just zero to 100 all the time. And then the inflammation that we just talked about is going to take a harder hit because it's not used to that. So if we can just slowly create stimuli that he gets used to, 
then when it does hit and shit hits the wall and he's really got to get to work, there's less recovery time, not only from like a, a psychological state, but from a muscular state, from the inflammatory process as well. And then like just his heart rate being able to stay cool and collected. Um, so those are like things that we really look at as far as for firefighters and uh, tactical athletes and, and even fighters, just because you can't be 100% all the time. Like you have to back down. Um, I will say one one thing that was really cool uh, is he said that they do these tests where they see how much oxygen they, they take up as they do work. Uh, and I had no idea that was a thing, but he said just from training for, I think, three months that he was using way less oxygen, just being able to perform work. So that is also a reason why you would train them like that, because if they can do more work with less oxygen, that means that they're able to do more more work just in those high pressure situations and that's all going to lead down to the cellular level as well that's there's my practical answer and that's a good good segue to (laughs) to my answer um so my master's student who just defended and she's worked for the department of defense she published her thesis was on uh due to covid we did a review paper and she was looking at the mechanisms of sauna bathing on, on cardiometabolic markers in high stress occupations. And one of the questions I asked her, because sauna bathing, long story short, sauna bathing has been shown to act, act as an exercise mimetic, mimic exercise in several um, different components, I guess. And so she was up there defending her thesis. And my question to her uh, follows along this line, which is, We have these soldiers, police officers, firefighters, ER nurses, whatever it might be, and they're already so stressed. They're stressed psychologically, physiologically, lack of sleep, poor nutrition, um, usually uh, sporadic eating patterns. Uh, And so now we're talking about, and we'll use this example of exercise, why would we add an additional stressor on top of this very stressed out state? Hence the term high stress occupation. And uh, she gave a pretty good answer, but to build off of her answer, it's that when everybody, everyone has a threshold of stress they can handle. And that threshold is different for each person, wherever it might be. Eventually though, once that stress Uh, kind of spills over, we then get what's known as oxidative stress, that stress at the cellular level, stress at the cell that occurs at the cell. When oxidative stress takes place, that then results in low chronic grade inflammation. And then from inflammation, we get the development of all the cardiometabolic diseases we can talk about. So then if we tie it back to, let's again, exercise, why is exercise, why would we recommend a stressor in addition to all these other stressors? Well, the way we combat oxidative stress, which is really where all these problems originate from at the cell, the way we combat that is with every cell is equipped with an antioxidant defense system. And when you deplete that antioxidant defense system, that's where problems occur. Well, how do you then build up that antioxidant defense system? Well, you could 
uh, take antioxidants as a supplement where you could eat more fruits and vegetables and you, we can go down that. But the thing is, is those aren't nearly as effective as exercise. Exercise causes an increase, although it acts as an acute stressor, chronically it elevates your antioxidant capacity or levels. And so, yeah, your stress, you know, exercise may stress you and, and theoretically put you in the hole for 60 minutes and you got to recover from that. But then chronically you elevate, as long as you continue to exercise, you forever elevate your antioxidant status. And so now that we're exercising, uh, even though we're in the stress cell state, because our antioxidant status is higher, the chance of oxidative stress occurring is much lower. And because the chance of oxidative stress occurring is much lower, the chance of chronic low-grade inflammation occurring is lower. And because that's lower, the chance of all the development of these metabolic diseases is lower. And so it all goes back to exercise. Yeah, super good answer. Uh, the right answer, obviously. I think it's funny you mentioned um, <clears throat> exercise being a mimetic, right? Because it is 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 really the the thirty minutes to an hour and a half or however long you're training that you are mimicking a real life situation that's going to put you under stress. Um, when it comes to medicine, there's a lot of exercise mimetics that they're trying to come out with, especially for people that have you know diabetes and obesity because you know pills make money. Um, but also, like in the grand scheme of things, it could be the last option that people have. But you know, it's it's such a, a full body thing that when you exercise, the epinephrine goes up. So you're going to push blood around and that's going to move. Uh, you know, I just learned about natural killer cells. So that's going to move natural killer cells into the bloodstream. That's going to, you know, send it out to all these tumors that might have um, or all these cells that might have tumors growing in them and kill them if everything works right. But like that's a multi-step process that like you can only do with exercise really. You know, even if you create a pill that's going to change how IMPK works and everything else gets elevated, your heart rate doesn't really get higher, right? The blood doesn't pump out any higher. So it's it's really not the answer. And the answer is almost always going to be like, hey, if you want to benefit, you have to put in the work. That's the only way that, that the body adapts. <laughs> Another thing is that it's so cool to me when you think about how even doing just one training session, up they they found that the uh, I forget what the effect is called, but your ability to deal with that stressor again can last up to like six months, sometimes a year. When it comes to like exercise induced muscle damage, and then also the inflammatory process itself. So so think about that. Like you you did something once, and your body was like, I don't ever want to feel the stress again. So I'm going to be better at dealing with this and if you do that every day two to three times a week you know and you actually put in the work then you increase your chances of living and dealing with life like way way more um and that's why we always push so much that like yeah you can do a lot of that stuff with diet but like you also need exercise because like that's that's really the only way that you you survive whether you want to believe it or not so um yeah, cool, great answer. Well, and just to build off of that as well, as exercise scientists, and although my passion is definitely in nutrition, when you look at it on the scale, on the grand scale, 
um, this, the adaptations and uh, um, almost, I guess you could say even from the stress perspective, from the benefits at the cellular level, exercise is in its own category. I mean, it is, it's yeah. the, the improvements that you can get. If we just stick with antioxidants within the cell, the improvements that you can get from nutrition and supplements and fruits and vegetables pale in comparison to what you get from exercise, which is why when you take someone who exercises and give them antioxidants, we don't ever see an increase in their antioxidant <laughs> status in their cells because it can't touch what exercise has already done for them by, by a long shot. And you really hit it on the head. You know, the big thing with ACSM right now is exercise is medicine. And UAB has this whole center uh, just directed to exercise as medicine. Well, when we think of that, what does that actually mean? It means that exercise acts in a systemic fashion where a pill medication can only target a gene, a pathway, an enzyme. And many times there's going to be some consequence to that. It's going to turn something off that people didn't think about that down the road is going to cause issues. But even that exercise is medicine. Well, there's a dosage of exercise for everyone. So what I or you might be able to handle, you know, Brooke's talking about if you're or you row when you're talking about working with a firefighter, their dose, aka of medicine is going to maybe be different. And so you have to figure out what's that dosage, what's that threshold that's going to allow them to, and that's really where the practical hands-on part comes in, which is kind of away from me. That's where there's a real beauty when you have the practical side and then the research side and they marry up together and they listen to one another. And it's not like, well, it's just this or just that. Cause I know both sides. I know researchers who are like, it's all about research, <laughs> which if, you know, Dr. Smith had that book, don't be such a scientist. And it's like, we do a really bad job of, taking what we know and getting it to the public. But then you have these, you know, practitioners who gym bros write blogs and they just read, listen to what other gym bros say, and they're completely removed from the science. And, you know, it's a, it's a real issue. So it's, there's a real beauty there when you take science and, and the hands-on part and, and combine it, uh, which is why I have such an appreciation for this crew right here, because, you know, we talked last time and, I, I I mentioned I have no empathy when it comes to nutrition. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> eat this, drink that. I do not care if you like it or not. You're an adult, do it. And but I know that's not how it works, which is why I don't have anybody under me listening to me. So, uh, you know, you got to have both sides for sure. I'm gonna sleep well tonight. No, I'm like Hunter thinks I'm beauty. Okay, <laughs> we're good today. <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. Cool. So I want to talk about night shift workers in particular. And I know, Hunter, you worked and did research with firefighters. And I'm, I'm not sure maybe if this was your population when you did other research with the night shift work. But specifically, how can, you know, I just hear when people talk about how stressful that is and how hard it is, like, what can you do to help support your body if that's the scenario that you work under? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a it's a really hard question to unpack because there's so many components. And so when I work with firefighters, police, military, uh, whoever it might be, most of my research to date has been with the mil uh, excuse me firefighters. I've done some with uh, some special force Green Beret guys, and then I've done some with police officers. And I kind of just I wouldn't call it research, but I do some with 
uh, some of the hospital setting, I guess you could say, just kind of word of mouth friends and talk with them. You start looking at the different components that make up health. I mean, we got sleep, you got nutrition, you've got exercise, but then you've got psychological stress. Uh, and that psychological stress is, is a monster in its own because, well, that can be, we've got individuals that are suffering with PTSD. You've got individuals that are, uh, they've got financial issues, significant other issues. And so it's just, there's just so much there. Usually what I tell them is like, hey, first thing we need to do is we need to find one of these aspects that we can focus on and just make it better. So I'll stick with firefighters since I know them best. These guys usually work a 24 hour on, 48 hour off. When they're 24 hours on, they're staying at a station and that station is 24 seven, very lightly lit. There's no dark spaces. Uh, people are always up all, all day, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. There's always a guy moving around, making noise with a TV on. Uh, they're constantly woken up throughout the night, sirens going off, things coming off over the radio, they got to get up, knock out a fire, go, you know, do whatever the call is. So if we were just simply to focus on sleep, just improving sleep quality uh, can have a huge impact on them. Well, the first thing we want to know is, well, how do you improve sleep quality? Well, you need, you know, right now you're sleeping on a couch and it's lightly lit and you've got a TV on. We need to be in a dark room. It needs to be cold, ideally around 70, 72 degrees. Uh, you can wear like an eye mask. Yeah, you're probably going to receive a lot of hell from the guys for it, but blocking out all that light, trying to wear some kind of earmuffs or earplugs, something to block out that noise, um, trying to get away from any kind of movement around you, like minimizing light, something even in, they'll say, well, you know, what if I'm, what if I don't get my full eight hours of sleep? Is it, does it matter? I'm like, yeah, it matters. It, when you're asleep, you want to make it as quality of sleep as you can. Well, what about the nutrition side? Well, there's something known as a chrono nutrition, which is essentially trying to align your sleeping patterns and your dietary patterns. And so chrono nutrition is kind of a new area coming out and kind of, it's kind of the whole idea behind time restricted feeding, uh, which is where, we know when or we're starting to know that when you wake up in the morning, everything's a go. All organs, as soon as light, UVA, UVB light hits your eyelids, it sends a signal to the brain, suprachiasmatic nuclei found in the hypothalamus, all these big fancy words. And that all connects up to all the rest of the organs in the body and essentially says, hey, it's it's go time. Wake up. Let's get going. Start releasing digestive enzymes. Start essentially waking up. And as you move throughout the day, as the sun fluctuates, in fact, when it peaks at 12 o'clock in the afternoon or around lunchtime and then it starts to come down, that light, as it hits the eyelids, it literally tells the brain like it's like a, a ticking time bomb. And as we start getting in 2 p.m., 3 p.m., 4 p.m., 5 p.m., as the sun starts to set, that tells the brain to start turning things off. And so by nighttime, you're ideally your organs are starting to not shut down, but they're kind of almost like going to sleep. It's, it's literally your brain's telling your body, hey, it's time to start coming down, time to start repairing and recovering for the next day. And by the time you've gone to bed, 
everything's shut down for the most part in your sleep. Well, the problem we see, and this is where time-restricted feeding potentially offers something that we don't really see with other diets. Uh, Something that we see with, you know, firefighters or high-stress occupations is that these individuals will go to sleep at, I don't know, 10 p.m., and then they're waking up at 12 p.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and what are they doing? On their way out, they're grabbing a honey bun, they're grabbing a Gatorade, and they're keeping these systems that should be shutting down. They're keeping these systems always going. And so now what do we see? Well, we see insulin resistance, and we see, again, start to see type 2 diabetes taking place, which is very common, and people are shocked to hear that. But type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance a uh, high HbA1c levels, high resting glucose levels like this is normal high triglycerides even though they some of them look healthy this is still what we're finding in this occupation. And so we found that hey if we just align their sleeping patterns with their nutrition which is even if you're working a 24 hour on shift when it's 10 o'clock at night until 6 or 7 a.m you're not eating like you you can have liquid, uh, water, tea, but you have to give, you have to take some time to let that body recover, to let that body relax uh, and let those organs essentially have a chance to rejuvenate themselves and repair themselves. Um, so, yeah, it's tough because, you know, you have to look at it and you say, well, what's practical? Are we going to stress it, stress them out, putting them on a diet? Hey, you, you now you have to figure out what 10 hour window you want to eat. Well, now they're st- they're already stressed. And now they're stressed from the diet itself. So it's always when I work with those guys, yeah, on a research setting, I put them on a diet as a group. But, you know, as we talked last time, there's there's quite a bit of dropout rate on that. So it really comes down to, and this is where personalized nutrition comes in. It really is an individual thing. And it, 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 it you need to be able to talk to these men and women and essentially sit them down and say, where in your life can we work on that's not going to stress you out? That's practical. Is it your sleep? Is it getting you to exercise any or more? Is it getting us to work on your nutrition, your psychological stress? So, yeah, like I said, it's it's such a loaded question. It's one of those that uh, I I would I mean obviously could teach an entire course on, uh, but we don't have that kind of time. But yeah, <laughs> it's um it's a tough one. I mean that's a tough question. Hunter, uh, I guess like a question that came up for me would be if you're not a night shift worker and you're just someone that like associates yourself as like a night owl, is that something that you should just try to work on to fix to go to bed earlier since you said that, you know, this is our natural, like our body's natural response as the sun starts to come down, our body just naturally starts to shut down and wants to rest and recover. Um, You know, if it is like a... a controllable thing like if it's our choice to just stay up later or whatnot is that something that an individual should work on to I guess change their habits so it's a good question I would say if you press me hard enough um I would say <laughs> because when you look at when you look at, uh, I don't know what Rose laughing so hard at. I'm, I was about <laughs> to give an answer. Like, and I, <laughs> no, you're like, if you just press me hard enough, I'm like, we're not pressing you at all. Just give us your answer. 
Well, I'm sitting here making time-restricted feeding out to be like, it's going to save the world if you're a night shift person. So, but the honest truth is, is if I was to look at someone who's a night out, well, we know there's individual differences. There's individual, there's from a genetic standpoint, if you're, so my wife, Erica, is a night owl, and I'm not, I'm a, a self-proclaimed grandpa, and I'm, we're, we're, we're creeping up on my bedtime pretty soon, 730. <laughs> Same. So we're getting, yeah, we're getting close to my bedtime. So there's some genetic differences there. So my argument would be that the most important thing is, are we maintaining, are we staying in a caloric balance that that would be where my focus would be on because i don't know how meaningful i've read the research on time restricted feeding i've completed it too i don't know how meaningful uh is it an intervention that works yes there's no doubt about it it puts you in a caloric deficit weirdly enough matt and i've done research where we found benefits without being a caloric deficit is there something there around meal timing and nutrient timing, like what we're talking about? If you sync up your eating patterns with your sleep patterns, is there something there that we haven't seen with other diets? Maybe, because I don't know how to explain how we found all these different health benefits when there was no caloric deficit. They, In fact, we made them eat the same amount of calories every day. We just confined it to a window. That was the only difference. There was no caloric deficit cost. And there were benefits from doing that. With that said, I still don't know. I'm not sold on that one study. I'm not sold. And when you look at that, so much of it's been done in animal data. My question is always, well, how meaningful is it? It's great that you improve yada yada, but how meaningful is it? Is that a practical finding or is it just a statistical finding, which is what a lot of people hold on to in research? Everybody wants to find a statistical difference, but that's great. But is it meaningful? Um, so what I would say is someone who's a night owl, the biggest thing there would be, are we staying in a caloric balance? Are we staying, if, if the idea is to maintain health, maybe even slightly in a caloric deficit where AMPK, I put a lot of, it's not, it's not the end all be all, but as much as I've read on it and come to appreciate it, that enzyme AMPK, it is so protective it seems, and it relies on so many other enzymes and it's not the, it just doesn't do everything by itself, but it does some pretty cool stuff. And when you're in a slight caloric deficit and that guy's turned on, uh, there seems to be a lot of protective properties it can offer. And so I would say like, yeah, maybe you are eating at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. because you're a night owl, but being in that caloric deficit or being in just simply a caloric balance seems to be protective in all its own. Um, so you know, I, I would put my money there. It's more about the calories than, and of course, food quality, you know, people hear this, be like, oh, he doesn't care about food quality. No, <laughs> that's, that has nothing to do. Of course I do. I'm just saying, I think cal- calories is definitely the big picture here. So you're saying have a whole gallon of ice cream at 2 a.m. <laughs> and it's fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like macros. there's levels to it, you yeah. know, and like calories is the first thing you should get in check before you start worrying what are the calories made of so mm-hmm. i feel you sure and then yeah. people come at me uh with because Who's fighting you man pe- are you, do you man, feel people have come people have come at me just different <laughs> not i mean instead of trying to hold a conversation with me they just want to come at me and yeah man they'll see yeah. I, I usually in all of my studies uh in the last couple of years since that 
again, last time we talked, that kind of click happened in my head. I realized, okay, well, they're in a quote deficit. I always make that out to be at the end of a, any of my research articles, like, hey, this likely happened. They increased their protein consumption, fell into a caloric deficit, yada, yada. And then, but people will say, oh, well, it's about hormones. I'm like, okay, well, do, are we aware that hormones are dictated on your calorie consumption? Like hormones are completely regulated by calories. You fall into a caloric deficit, certain hormones are upregulated and downregulated. And if you're in a caloric surplus or caloric balance. So when you look at the pyramid and the bait, your, your pyramid's only as tall as its base. Hormones, insulin, if you want to get into the insulin carbohydrate model and everything else, macro, yeah, macronutrient percentages, micronutrients and stuff. Calories is the base of the pyramid and everything from there you build off of. And of course, I'm a, you know, I have my thoughts on what's like an ideal macronutrient ratio and I do, you know, favor meal timing and and certain meal frequency, but until calories are, you know, uh, essentially taken care of the rest of that just kind of falls in on itself. Yeah. You really can't dive into like your specific goals until you are actually eating enough every single day. Yeah. It's also like hard to tell a client, right? Like we're going to, we're going to change everything right off the bat instead of being like, Hey, let's just make sure that you're eating enough first. Um, was way simpler. And then, like Connor just said, there's so many more benefits that come from just that. Um, and not even that, but also stress, right? Like we deal with a lot of people that are just stressed about their weight and their health and what they're supposed to eat and what they've they've heard is good and bad and all this stuff. And if you're like, oh, don't stress about that. We're just going to focus on eating a certain amount, regardless of what it is. We'll, we'll fine tune it, right? So Hunter, you, you had a really great way of saying that like, your pyramids is only as big as its base, right? If you don't have good habits, then it doesn't matter that you're getting enough vitamin C or enough vitamin E when you're like, hey, you're still a thousand calories under what you should be because you are working 24 hours straight or something like that. So yeah, a lot, a lot to think about. What questions do we have left? Um, well, actually, I, I do have a question. Um, and Hunter, and I, I, I kind of mentioned this um, off, off camera, off the air, whatever. So I have this friend who is uh, competing or hopes to compete in bodybuilding. So right now she's in her prep phase. Uh, and she's not my client, uh, mostly because I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that she's told me. Um, but she told me that her coach right now or there was a certain time uh where her coach was really saying that she couldn't have any carbs post-exercise uh and the reasoning and i said like well that makes no sense like there's two times really where you should be having carbs if you're gonna have them pre and post you know what i mean um and she said that he said it had to do with increasing insulin sensitivity which was going to lead to, I don't know, more muscle gain and, and less inf- inflammation. I, I don't really know what kind of buzzwords this person might have thrown out, you know. Um, but can, can we touch on that uh, a bit and your thoughts on that? Because for me, like, I don't think that 
uh, my boss Lawrence had a really good saying where he's like, you don't diet on the bike. So he, he does a lot of mountain biking. And if he's going to try and lose weight, you're not going to cut out food pre intra and post when you're trying to perform. Right. And so when you think about even something like bodybuilding where, yeah, the dieting is definitely the hardest aspect, but you have to recover from really high volume, really strenuous workouts, depending on where you're at with little food for long periods of time, you're trying to maximize your ability to perform and your ability to recover. So if you are taking out carbs so that your insulin is upregulated, the benefits don't seem like they outweigh eating after, especially from we know about like how how eating protein and carbohydrate uh, has shown to just help with recovery because you are pushing more glycogen into the muscle. You are recovering a lot faster. We've seen, I think there was a study uh, that showed that like strength gains even came back uh, when compared to not doing it. So if you're thinking about a long-term, you know, 12, 18 weeks of prep, why would you give up so much performance and recovery for something as trivial as insulin sensitivity like what are your thoughts on that yeah so that would immediately make me think that that coach i don't know him or her but doesn't understand physiology that well right um when you hear about people talking about insulin sensitivity you immediately go to carbohydrates because someone would think well insulin is released when you eat carbohydrates when you look at the diet literature, when you look at nutrition, it's been pretty well established now that insulin sensitivity can be improved on a low fat diet, on a low carbohydrate diet, and any diet where calories are reduced. It really seems insulin sensitivity is dependent more on calories than it is the macronutrient, which I found very interesting because I forever thought, oh, well, insulin sensitivity is all about, uh, you go back to your carbohydrate intake. But Dr. Kevin Hall, who's a very famous nutrition researcher, um, his lab has been done a pretty awesome job at establishing and showing that you can improve insulin sensitivity on a very high carbohydrate diet. Uh, it seems that the beta cells of the pancreas is more sensitive to calorie consumption than it is the actual macronutrient itself. Plus you release insulin with a high protein intake uh, through gluconeogenesis. And there's several other ways that insulin can be released uh, to kind of go off what you were saying. The two reasons, one of the reasons why someone would reduce carbohydrate intake after exercise uh, to improve insulin sensitivity. Well, let's go back to the meaningfulness of that. You have someone who's compete. What is she competing in? Bodybuilding. So I, you I have someone bikini. who's competing in bodybuilding, mm-hmm. who is going to. So let's say she's an athlete. She's fairly probably carries a decent amount of muscle, which is probably body composition is the strongest indicator of insulin sensitivity. So you have someone who probably carries a lot of muscle on them, very low body fat, uh, relatively speaking. And you're trying to improve her insulin sensitivity even more. 
that makes very little sense because let's say even if you do improve and that word gets tossed around insulin sensitivity, all they're talking about is reducing her insulin levels. If her insulin levels come down from whatever it's measured in from five to four, statistically, again, that's probably significant, but is that meaningful? No, there's probably literally no meaningfulness in that method. Number two, a lot of coaches will do that post-workout uh, because they get an increase in growth hormone. Growth hormone is a very lipolytic hormone, breaks body fat down. The problem there is that growth hormone is being released post-exercise when you don't have carbohydrates because it's acting as a catabolic hormone. It's breaking other things down because it does not have those carbohydrates in there. And we know that when carbohydrates aren't included in the post-workout meal, cortisol stays elevated higher. Cortisol is another, it's a glucocorticoid, another catabolic hormone. When elevated for a prolonged period of time, it does a very good job of being a proteolytic hormone of breaking down a lot of muscle mass and protein and taking those amino acids and gluconeogenesis, making new glucose from it because you didn't replace those carbohydrates in the first mm -hmm. place. So it does sound counterintuitive to not have carbohydrates in that post-workout meal, what I would suggest instead of not having carbohydrates in the post-workout meal, when we know any basic exercise physiology course will teach you is that that is the, and you said this as well, muscles are essentially hungry for carbohydrates. The glute fours are upregulated. They're sitting on the cell membrane, ready to bring glucose in, and you're not going to feed them that. Uh, it seems like if you wanted to improve insulin sensitivity, the better way would be, again, caloric deficit, because that seems to be a stronger indicator of insulin sensitivity uh, than your carbohydrate intake, which, again, is, is, is mind boggling when you hear that for the first time. Uh, but it's what the research shows. And once I've studied it some, it makes a lot more sense to me that the body is a little more sensitive to the caloric state as opposed to the macronutrient state. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, like, when you, this person is already in a a deep caloric deficit, depending on how much, you know, uh, body fat they're carrying, and also depending on how far away they are from their show. So that goes to coaching, right? If your athlete is already having a really shitty time just dealing with day in and day out step, like, why are you going to take away carbohydrates when they need them the most? And then be like, well, you know, you just get them tomorrow morning. And it's like, all right, well, that's going to affect their sleep. That's going to affect how they think. They, they probably still have to do work. I know she's a nursing student, so like has to study and whatnot. So, you know, it, even if it, the insulin sensitivity was like not just scientifically significant, but like applic application-wise, very significant, is that worth it? If you're not sleeping well and you're not feeling well and you have 12 more weeks to go, you know what I mean? So if you are a coach um, or, you know, you, you maybe have heard something like this a lot, that's something that you should, you should challenge and you should maybe talk to that athlete or that coach about like why. And if they can't really explain why, I'm not going to tell you to get a new coach, right? But maybe start to think about what it is this person actually knows and what kind of buzzwords they're just throwing out because of some bodybuilding.com article. So, well, here's something else I would add to that as well, is that 
if you don't understand physiology, you would not understand also that when you reduce carbohydrate intake enough, people pursue insulin sensitivity, not realizing they can actually cause themselves to become insulin resistant. And that's what we see with people who follow the ketogenic diet is that they shut down all these glycolytic enzymes and uh, essentially these different proteins that are in that pathway that when they start consuming carbohydrates again, they can't utilize them nearly as well. It takes uh, like they have to reaccommodate to being able to use carbohydrates again because they've become insulin resistant. And you're talking about a diet that should be the ultimate insulin, insulin sensitivity diet because you're totally removing carbohydrates. And what we see is the opposite, that you remove carbohydrates and these individuals become insulin resistant. Well, now look at this, whoever this person is that you're talking about. She's 12 weeks ago. Coach is trying to make her more insulin sensitive. Big whoop. And at the end of the 12 weeks, she becomes insulin. Let's say she does fall into a state of insulin resistance, which is a very good chance of occurring, especially if her calories continue to drop. And even more, if she's doing chronic aerobic work, not even to get into her menstrual cycle and how that wrecks havoc on that. Right. But then she does the show and she comes out and she goes and probably has what every bodybuilder does, a cheat meal. And they just go all out for the next couple of days. Well, now you're insulin resistant. So how does your body accommodate for that? The best way to handle that is, hey, if we can't store this in the muscle because we forgot how to do that, at least for the first couple of days we're eating carbohydrates, we're going to go through uh, hyperplasia, adipose hyperplasia, create new adipose tissue, put it all in that the, those body fat cells, and guess what happens? We gain all this body fat back plus some before we ever started this cut. And now we're starting back over just a bigger person. So there's a real issue in the bodybuilding community. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, Lane Norton and a couple others have really kind of been hitting on it. But this issue of like dropping carbohydrates and calories too quickly, falling into an insulin resistant state, and then no one's there to help coach them when the bodybuilding shows over. That, hey, you got to ease, just like you ease down into this diet, you got to ease back out of it. And it's just wrecks havoc, especially when you look at females. Yeah, it does, does so on males. Don't know why males seem to be a little more cushioned to the harmful effects. Uh, sure, they still put on body fat, but I think testosterone protects them a little bit. But man, when you look at a, a, the, the female physiology, you look at the menstrual cycle and how it's just wrecked by that caloric deficit by pulling out carbohydrates. I mean, there's a good bit getting into that. And then you see how they come, they fall into like adrenal fatigue, which you can argue whether that actually exists or not, but their hormones essentially get shot. And then they come out of that show and they put on massive amounts of body fat coming out of the show. And then they have trouble with it and their, their uh, metabolism and those metabolic markers, they're just, they're, they're gone. And so they have trouble with it. Uh, and you get these coaches who are coaching these women and they don't understand female physiology and it is different. It's not, it's not the same as a guy. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend uh, at state who did a competition and pretty much threw herself into uh hyperthyroidism or hypo one of those, right. Just because she, I mean, she looked great on stage, like phenomenal, but then afterwards, like 
coach kind of let her do her thing and then you know she hasn't competed since so uh yeah that stuff is is really important to to think about I, I did have a question as far as you know how long do you think it takes to become insulin resistant because you know i don't know if this was for maybe just two to three weeks and not the whole 12 weeks but you know i have a saying where it's like there there are no free lunches in physiology like if you take something away something else is is always going to be affected so you know e- even if someone says like well we're just doing this for two three weeks right is that enough time for something like insulin resistance to occur um you know all that other stuff notwithstanding about how it's not even optimal yeah so if you look at the i'll use the ketogenic diet lit literature just because it's probably i mean when you think of carbohydrate restriction i mean ketogenic diets what comes to mind when you look at the ketogenic diet literature uh you can see insulin resistance occur and Although I don't have a direct marker for it, the markers that I think of is an individual's inability to access their glycolytic pathway. When you look at that research, that can take place in seven days. So wow. theoretically, someone becomes so dependent on fat that they cannot access that carbohydrate pathway uh, in a matter of about seven days. Now, what I would think, and I don't have research to support this, but what I would think is, is even if you became insulin resistant in seven days, you would probably be able to come out of that very quickly because it didn't take you very long to get there. But if you, the longer you stayed in that state, 14 days, 21 days, three months, four months, I would imagine the longer it would take for you to come out of that insulin resistant state. So if your friend uh, let's say went into a state of insulin resistance for two weeks. Well, if she could probably come out of that fairly quickly, but if she was to stay into that state for two years, that would probably be much different. Yeah. And, and that's, that's two weeks where you weren't performing at an optimal level. Right. And people always talk about how competitions are so close in, in life, right? You, it, it is a game of, of inches and in football and baseball and not baseball, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and then it's, it, it is a game of, of dieting and, and who can last and whatnot. So if you took two weeks where you were not performing at an optimal level and you were really kind of just putting yourself uh, on purpose, whether you believed it or not in a suboptimal level, then you're, you're, you're already behind. Right. Somebody who is doing things in a more strategic way is like, oh, we don't have to worry about that. Like you're crushing it. So why am I going to focus on something like that? So that's cool. I, uh, I direct people. Oh, go ahead. No, you, you can go ahead. I had another question there for the question. So go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, even having done a good bit amount of ketogenic work, I still probably turn more people away from that diet then I turn them to it because I think it's a definitely a, a viable tool in certain metabolic disorders. I think for obesity and type two diabetes, I think it can be very beneficial uh, in cancer, certain types of cancer and neurological diseases. But when you're talking about an athlete, when you're talking about someone for bodybuilding or wrestling or MMA or football or rugby, basketball, salt, whatever it might be, I I would never put them on a ketogenic diet. I cannot think for any reason 
Uh, simply think- because even if you look at body, we'll just stick with bodybuilding. If I'm trying to get my client the most food I possibly can, well, first off, lipids are the most calorically dense of the three macronutrients. Mm-hmm. And if you're pulling carbohydrates away, well, you've still got fat and protein, but most fat will be consumed in some type of oil form, or if not, it's going to be consumed in a lipid form, part of the meat, but it's not very satiating. Now, if I can pull back calories from fat, I've still got carbohydrates, four calories per gram versus not. I can still fit a lot of food there. And the number one thing that happens when you fall into a caloric deficit, the reason it's so hard is when all those hunger hormones turn on and you're starving. Well, you want to offset that as much as you can. Well, fibrous carbohydrates is one of the best ways to do that. Increase that satiating hormone, uh, the feeling of fullness. Um, so I just, I still don't understand why a coach would pull (laughs) carbohydrates away when it would be much easier to keep carbohydrates in the meal, pull fat out, and you're letting your client get the most food they possibly can while still staying within their caloric limit. Yeah. Well, that's because that coach probably doesn't know what they're talking about, right? There's, there's a limit. You can't just pull all the fats out because we know that fats play such an integral role in hormones. Right. But and and generally, like if you are eating like 400 grams of carbs, then it's a lot easier to take away because you're like, oh, like that's so much we can we can chip away. Um, so, yeah, that that's a, a really good answer. I um, was going to say something, but then I forgot. So, you know, that's that's just my life <laughs> at this point. Um, it's the Paloma. It is the, it's definitely the tequila <laughs> for sure. Himaloto is doing its thing and just being like, it's time for sleepiness. And I'm like, all right. Um, I, I did want to, you know, you do a lot of research, uh, Hunter, on females uh, specifically because we've talked before about how there is nothing out there for women. Uh, when you look at the body of research, it's like, it really says that. There's men, and then women are just men with hormones. Like, that's that's how it's simplified. And it's like, how? You know what I mean? Like, how, how do we know that there are some inherent differences and we're just still believing or assuming that things are um, going to be the same? So I was wondering if you could, if you could also talk about you know, uh, I we can we can stick on on carbohydrates right now because it's kind of the theme. Uh, but like how differences um, in carbohydrate uh, uh, oxidation works um, for females. And if, you know, there are certain times within their cycle when it may be more appropriate to have more carbohydrates and less, especially if you are an athlete. So when you look at female physiology, first off, and I think we mentioned this last time, uh, many researchers steer away from females as their sample. And the reason they'll give that is for the hormone fluctuations throughout the month, uh, which can make trying to control for each phase fairly difficult. Because if I test you in the follicular phase, and then I need to bring you back. Well, I either need to wait until this time next month, or I can test you in the next phase, which is the luteal phase. And 
reviewers are going to hit on us and say, well, you didn't test them during the same phase. How do you know this is accurate? I think to Rose's question in terms of carbohydrate metabolism and does it change based on hormones, this was definitely a area of interest early on, uh, probably when I was looking at the research, probably in the early 2000s, there have been a few reviews and meta-analyses that have come out looking at the menstrual cycle and oxidation rates. So how well women burn fat and carbohydrates. And the overarching research shows that even though women compared to men burn more fat uh, at any given intensity, likely due to higher estrogen levels, and because they just have more fat than men do. Uh, but when you look at it women to women that and look at it across the menstrual cycle, it doesn't seem to have a meaningful difference. Fat oxidation rates are slightly higher in the follicular phase. So if we look at the three main phases, we have the menses phase or the bleeding phase at seven days on average. You move into 14 days, anywhere from 10 to 14 days, the follicular phase. And then the last half of the cycle is your uh, luteal phase. And that second part of the phase, the follicular phase, uh, right before the follicle is stimulated, you get this huge peak around day 10 or 11 in estrogen and progesterone. And so those two hormones cause a big spike in burning fat. But even then, the increase is statistically, again, statistically significant but it's it's not meaningful. It's not a it's not a meaningful increase in fat oxidation that would really should change anything. And then you move into the luteal phase, and those hormones start to come back down, and kind of back down the baseline. Uh, so I guess to answer your question, Ro, is there's not enough research yet to suggest that you should even you should change a female's a woman's diet based on her menstrual cycle. There's just not enough there, even though, yeah, they burn more fat than men. Yes, they burn more fat during this certain part of the menstrual cycle, but it's not meaningful enough to suggest changing it, which is kind of good in the big picture because I wouldn't want to, especially if you're working with a female athlete, okay, you're gonna have to monitor your menstrual cycle <laughs> days 10 through 14, and guess what? It could be days 10 through 12. We got to figure that out because you're going to be a little different than your friend and your friend's a little different than her friend. You got to figure out exactly where this peak in, in hormones occurs. And you'll only be able to notice that by a degree, one degree increase in your body temp at night. So you got to monitor your body temperature every night before you go to bed. And when you get that one degree increase, now we're going to increase your fat intake by 10 grams a day. You know, it would just seem to be so impractical and cause so much stress for that female athlete that uh, doesn't seem to make a difference. Now, with that said, just to kind of add a couple more things, I've got a couple papers pulled up that I have yet to be able to read that shows that during the follicular phase that women experience greater muscle damage. And that is both significant and meaningful. I don't, I have no idea. I did not read the paper yet. So I have no idea what the mechanism for that is, why they would experience more muscle damage when estrogen and progesterone are higher. There is a, another review that just came out today on bone loss and how 
Uh, bone density seems to be affected during the follicular phase, so that could have implications for training or even injury rates. So to say that, you know, the menstrual, we, there's so much that we don't know on it yet. Uh, and because there's been so little done research-wise with female athletes and females in general, like we're just uncovering all of this. But again, as far as the nutrition side, it seems, I would, I would argue there's not enough there yet for me to think that I would want to change her diet based on her menstrual cycle. Yeah, really, really good point. Uh, and then also to state that a lot of women nowadays are on birth control. And so that is like, okay, automatically different now, right? Because there's so much more suppression going on. And so, you know, like, how are you, from a practical standpoint, if you have a, a coach full of girls, women, uh, and you're like, hey, uh, let's all monitor this. Now I need to know what birth control you're on, if you're on it. Is it an IUD? Is it a pill? Is it something in your arm? Like all these things, they all do different things to the hormones. So then, yeah, like, well, you get 10 grams today. Uh, but, oh, you're switching? Okay, now we have to do complete, something completely different. And, and that kind of reminded me of the question I was trying to ask earlier. Even if you are burning more fat, right? You, you mentioned, Hunter, that there's not really any sports that you can think of where burning fat is going to make you more optimal at your sport. I, the only thing I think of is like ultra marathons, just because it's like so long and it's at a really low intensity. But if you are a female who has been told, you know, during this phase, you have to eat more fat, less carbs, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't change that you still have to compete. That doesn't change that you still have to be able to perform at a high level. And if dropping those carbs is going to make you uh, put out less power or recover slower, then then why are you doing that? You know, just because like, oh, based on these hormones and these markers from what we know now, which you've mentioned is not a lot, we should do this. But you also know your body better than anyone else. And if you are like, hey, this switch has made me less, uh, like I can't run as fast or I can't accelerate as fast, then some of that's in your head for sure. But in, a, in an hour-long soccer game, right, you are going to feel that. You are going, there are limits that are going to be placed somewhere along the way. So um, like, like you said, Hunter, just there's not enough out there yet. And then also as an athlete and especially as a female athlete, like, I don't know what that's like, but I, you know, really listen to your own body and, and what's going on for that sport and for that moment right there. Well, this is kind of a little off topic, but still on the menstrual cycle, female physiology. We, uh, I just wrapped up a study last fall. We were looking at caffeine metabolism and performance in women Ooh, do tell. And nice. oh, it was, it was legit. Yeah, we. One of the things that I was unaware of is that when you look at oral contraceptives, well, you have monophasic, biphasic, triphasic, and I was unaware until after the study that we were looking at the results, and I did not find what I was expecting, which is fine. That's part of research. 
But then I came across an article, very old article from the 70s that showed that women that take oral contraceptives reduce their ability to metabolize caffeine by half, which means that, and it's just one article out there on it, which means that if you have a, you know, if the, if caffeine hits the bloodstream in the typical man or woman in 60 minutes, if the woman has taken an oral contraceptive, it's now 120 minutes. So here we are, we gave them caffeine. We didn't find the performance benefits that we were expecting and I just chalked it up to, well, it didn't work in this group of women. But now looking back, I'm almost positive it's because almost all my women were on oral contraceptives and I did not let them sit long enough before <laughs> it really hit their bloodstream because those oral contraceptives shut down that cytochrome P450 pathway, which metabolizes it. And so... um I mean, it's just, it's wild to think, you know, it's hard to try and see anybody making an argument for making recommendations on the menstrual cycle just yet, because it is such, it's not a new topic. It's been around forever, but research is really only starting to pay attention to it. And there's so much to learn. If you look at just, let's say caffeine literature, uh, I can't remember how many thousands of articles there are. A meta-analysis showed there's like thousands and thousands of caffeine performance articles, less than 10% have been looked at in women. That means over 90% have been all done in males. And so even when we say caffeine's a perform, it's the most studied supplement, uh, most studied drug of any ever. Uh, but it's, and we say it works, it's got an ergogenic effect. Well, that's all done with male subjects. We have no idea how it really works with women just yet. So it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, whole, it's just an entire field. Everything that we thought we knew, creatine, caffeine, everything we recommend, you know, we, it, those are all recommendations based off male data. So <laughs> yeah. it's wide open for females right now. I love that researchers are like, ah, women are just too complicated. We better not. <laughs> yeah, so lazy, you know. <laughs> like, it really is. That's, that's, that's really great i had no idea and and you know for someone who uh is listening and is a female and is also on birth control right then you can think about like oh maybe that's why the bang energy that i pop right before i go in like doesn't really start to hit me until the beginning of my workout or or sorry the middle of it or the end of it like maybe that's why you know um that's really cool i had no idea that 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 happened so well i wouldn't be lying if I did not have that thought Brooke said, which was like, I just did this whole study, took forever, got it done, found nothing. And then I was just like, and when it finally hit me to answer, I was like, oh, this may be outside my realm. I'll let somebody else do it. It's too complex to try and control for. I did have that just for a second, had that thought, but no, it's well, been, it's been, it's been so, uh, it has been tough to try and control. It's so many more controllables than what I'm used to, uh, but it's been it's been a lot of fun because one thing I've noticed very quickly: female, my female subjects are so much tougher than my guys, Dude. and that just makes it that just makes it like worth it when we're doing wing gates or whatever it might be, or sticking a finger for a blood sample and. 
they're just like, yeah, do it. And then my guys are passing out and crying (laughs) and I got to get them somebody. It's just, and my wife's laughing over here. (laughs) But yeah, they've been, uh, my women have been awesome. They're rock stars. So I I was definitely like where I'm starting to rabbit hole myself to now. No, it's all good. And it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because we, my uh, superset study that I did, um, which I haven't finished the proof for, uh, same thing the the women were just like i mean they were just able to handle volume so much more and which we we know we know women could just handle more volume but they were just like pumping through whereas the male you know would do the the 15 reps of deadlifts and be like all right i'm i'm cashed and some of that is yeah that the training is is much different uh between the males that we had and the females that we had but a lot a lot of it had to do with just that women are like whatever dude i'll i'll do this and i'm like yeah i'm a little bitch <laughs> you're you're absolutely right so yeah tell tell her because she's stronger than i am in case you're stronger she loves than I am, to yeah she loves to remind me that she experiences something every month that i don't which makes her so <laughs> tough and that i will i just have no idea and i really don't but she loves to remind me of that of just like i'm just a pale in comparison to her strength and <laughs> nobility and the superiority of women. Yeah. Yeah, sure. exactly. Oh, that's so great. Hunter, do you ever feel like you're mansplaining to, to people, you know, when you're like, Oh, I'm just talking about my research. And they're like, yeah, you just think you know more because you're a man. And you're like, no, that's, that's really not what I'm trying to do. I've luckily never had anybody tell me that, but Erica tells me sometimes I use words that she's like, Hunter just doesn't, it sounds not nice when you use that. (laughs) Like, oh, I remember last time I talked to you guys, I used the word lay person and she was not, she overheard that and she was not happy. And, you know, I don't think, I'm just not thinking of it in a mean way, but she didn't like that. And she's like, don't use that word again. Oh, we've talked about that before. Like like normal person but then i'm like that doesn't mean that people who you know it's it's yeah it's it's weird because lay person normal person is not like you saying like oh yeah you're just you're just not this optimal beast like we're all normal people you know we're not elite athletes but it's just easier uh, should we say everyday people (laughs) like i don't know let us let us know if you're a listener i feel like the only normal person is like the mythical 70 kilogram white male that right. they like Even frame then, nah. everything around yeah, yeah yeah but lay person that's what i do every time i just call people lay people just so erica's like i can't listen to this anymore yeah or sometimes i'll tell her i'm like the science is just it's too i just don't want to go into the science of it so and she's like hunter no it, that is not nice so, <laughs> is i'm trying to get better at it i just and it's not on purpose i don't know where it came from but yeah, if you guys come up with a term other than layperson, I don't know. Y'all just tell I'll me. say rock stars. What about the rock stars uh, who aren't elite athletes? Um, I do have uh, another question. I just thought about if you're if you're down to talk about it for a bit. Okay, cool. So we did this. Um, you mentioned earlier that CRP is uh, pretty much the marker when it comes to inflammation, right? Uh, and especially chronic grade inflammation. We did this, um, we can call it like case study, I guess, in class where we had one of our, um, I almost said students, one of our fellow students do um, body weight exercise 
Um, but one time she had carbohydrates, I believe it was pre and the other time it was post. Um, and I was in charge of the CRP data uh, that we just pulled. And obviously it's an N of one and she's, you know, a woman for whatever that means. Um, but we, we found that between the placebo trial and the trial where she got carbohydrates, CRP was lower um, at the pretty much all time points. And it was, I think it was 15, 30, 45, 60, up to a hundred. And maybe it was just half hour in- increments. I don't remember, uh, specifically, but I thought that that was interesting. And I was wondering if you knew anything about the research behind that or why that might be, because even my professor was like, I don't really expect that. Um, because you, you expect CRP to be, I don't know. I guess you expect it to be higher when you have food as well, because some people say that carbohydrates will just increase inflammation just because of the processes that it that it turns on, as well as exercise also increasing inflammation post exercise. Um, so I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that and maybe why that happened. Sure. Uh, so. A high glycemic load can elevate inflammation in a hyper someone with hyperinsulinemia. Someone with already high insulin levels can elevate inflammation further from high glycemic load consumption. That to answer if carbohydrates can cause an increase in inflammation. Uh, to answer Rose's question, it's actually fairly simple in that C-reactive protein is signaled by the release of IL-6. And we know that IL-6 levels are lower from carbohydrate intake. So if you consume carbohydrates, IL-6 is lower. And because IL-6 is lower, CRP is lower. So that would actually make a lot of sense to me uh, from that standpoint. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it's just something that that he he had never, I guess, seen or thought about. And then for me, I was like, I just learned what CRP was the day before, bro. So I don't, <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. Um, but cool. Thank you for answering that question. Cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think we we have really touched on a lot of different things. Um, especially considering this is part two, you know, I was like, is, maybe this is going to be like 20 minutes and here it's been like an hour and a half. So <laughs> that's good. Um, this has been super insightful, not only from the research aspect, but from the practicality standpoint, you know, there are some things that I can tell now people who are clients of mine that are shift workers and especially firefighters like, Hey man, just go listen to this episode. <laughs> you, you'll learn, you'll learn plenty. Well, Cool. That'd be awesome. Cool. So thanks again for coming on her. Like, uh, obviously, I think you came on uh, like a month ago, and it was just as great uh, the second time. So, you know. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for for always being like a great resource and and helping us to to answer some things that we think about, but also like challenging what what some people really think and and is really prevalent in in the industry still, unfortunately. Um, 
But, you know, uh, can you give us a rundown again on where people can find you on the lack of internet that, that you, you live in? Yeah, so I usually tell, I have a Twitter. I know you guys asked for my handle last time. <laughs> I found it, yeah. I found it. You found it. You? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you can literally search Hunter Waldman. You'll find me. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm the only one. Uh, but I usually just tell people, research gate. Uh, is where I usually try and keep up with any researchers. My Twitter is straight up just research. And then really the only other place is my academic email. You just UNA, North Alabama, Hunter Waldman. You'll find my email. Shoot me an email if you want. But kind of a grandpa. I try and stay off the (laughs) social media a little bit. I like to kind of keep to myself when I'm not at school. or So, yeah, I try not to be too much on on the web too much. Yeah, I know last time I was like, hey, could you could you do this? I forgot to do something. And you're like, oh, I didn't remember my laptop home. And I was like, that's awesome, dude. What a G move for you to be like, work is work. <laughs> when I'm home, I'm home. You know, we lived that life as PhD students and it where we just lived, lived. And you're still doing it. But yeah, man, once I was done, I, I've got my computer with me right now, obviously. But um after doctoral life, I was like, yeah, I got to find that balance. I can't keep doing this. So for yeah. sure. Yeah. You lost your hair in the process and it, it's okay. So I <laughs> maybe to grow back someday. Um, cool. Thank you for coming on for our listeners. Please send us questions you might have um, specific to carb restriction, obviously for this episode, but any other episode that we might have as well. Um, anything that you might be interested in learning about, we're always looking for different topics um, so we can find really knowledgeable people like Hunter to come on and talk. Um, also, another announcement is I believe we're all taking clients still. Um, Brooke is the uh, sports dietitian, athletic performance, nutrition, all that badass stuff. Uh, Nicole is very uh, into health at every size and just learning to, to be better, man, like straight up better about uh, how you treat yourself, your relationship with food, and she's wonderful at what she does. So if you're interested in that, and then I am still taking on clients for uh, exercise performance or just general health stuff. Um, if any of that interests you, hit up the podcast or our um, own Instagrams because that's all in the information as well. But keep keep sharing us, keep listening. I've appreciated all the feedback. I know we all have as well. Um, and with that, we will lead you out and we will cue that music. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.